Hi, everyone. Welcome to 50 Now What? I'm your host, Alicia Sutton. Women play a vast amount of roles in their lives, but more often than not, we become caretakers for our spouses, children, or other loved ones. But what happens when we become the ones that need care and we're not sure where to turn? Luckily for us, today's guest, Susan Salinger, author of Sideline, How Women Can Navigate a Broken Healthcare System, is here to help unravel the complicated layers that come with dealing with health issues. In today's conversation, we speak about why multiple opinions are necessary for making any kind of medical decision, the current inequalities of how men are treated in this system versus women, how women can step confidently into these conversations with their doctors, and many more tips for moving through America's health system with knowledge and confidence. Moving through the healthcare system at any age is daunting. This conversation is a great place to help it feel less scary. Let's jump into it. Hi, Susan. Welcome to 50 Now What podcast. And thank you for joining us to discuss your book, Sidelined, How Women Can Navigate a Broken Healthcare System. And I've read the book and it resonated with me on many levels, first as a woman, foremost. And admittedly, I am reading the book with an added lens, having worked in the healthcare system as well and growing up in a healthcare worker uh, household. My mom was a nurse for over 30 years and worked as a health facilities evaluator for LA County. So a lot of the interviews and the stories that you tell in your book hit home and resonate with me on a little bit of a different level. But what I love about your book is that it's uh, in simple terms and filled with resources and really can act as a guide uh, to be, as your title says, navigate a broken healthcare system. So thank you so much for your book. But we can go into so much. But before we do that, I want to know more about you. I really do. You've had such an interesting life and so much to, you really have. And I always, I'd like to get in people's business. I'll just be honest with you. I like to, I like to know folks. So tell us a little bit about your journey and some of your life experiences and how you came to write Sidelined. Well, thank you, first of all, not only for having me, but for such a lovely introduction. And actually, I started out uh, with my husband in business many years ago. We made films, training films for business and industry, uh, like on telephone skills, customer service, etc. And then after 25 years or so, um, I retired, which was a terrible idea for me. It lasted about 12 seconds. I was driving my family nuts. So they said I had to go do something and stop calling them. So I did. And I, I went back to school and took some anthropology classes. And that's sort of where my journey with the book began. Because in some of the medical anthropology classes, I learned all kinds of information that women need to know about their health. And I have always been interested in health issues and my own health, of course, in particular. And so I thought to myself, this information needs to get out there because I didn't know it, despite all the previous reading I had done. And so at that point, sort of more or less simultaneously, I had some unnecessary surgery that I knew was unnecessary. And I agreed to it anyway because I was frightened. And, of course, it was just exploratory surgery. They found nothing. It was unnecessary. And then 
<laughs> sort of in the middle of all of that, I interviewed some women who had hysterectomies for a school project, and they too had agreed to the surgery, even though they were pretty sure they didn't need it. In fact, one of them was sure her problems were just due to menopause. But anyway, they too had agreed. And so I really began to wonder how women make medical decisions. How, what goes into, you know, how do we as women decide what to do and what to do next? And so then I interviewed about 50 or 60 women and just extrapolated some of the things they had in common. They all had different diseases. I did that in per- on purpose. I was looking for their per- specific behaviors. I wasn't interested in the physiology of it or the biology of it particularly. So I pulled out some behaviors that I thought where women in some ways really did themselves a disservice. And so the book is full of ideas about how to get more effective health care. But that was, that, that was a long story about my journey. How's that? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. And, and it gives us the broad breadth of what it is that brings us to where this book is. And when you talk about, you, you spoke to all these women in these interviews, which were phenomenal. And I was, I was reading some of the stories that were going in, some of the interviews that you did with these women that are in the book. What ended up being a big part of the trend that you found with women in terms of how they were making their decisions and how they were or not making decisions for that matter. Some of them were just, I guess, what were some of the top issues that you found that was negating the decision making amongst the women? Well, the first thing I found, which in a way surprised me and in a way, of course, it didn't, was that women tend to put themselves last. There was a study done where researchers gave women a list of five things to prioritize. You know, who or what would they take care of first? And all of them said they would take care of their children first, then their pets, which is my favorite part. <laughs> and they put their pets before their elderly parents. So it was as, as an elderly parent, I was not <laughs> thrilled with that. And then fourth, they take care of their significant other. And last but not least, you know, they take care of themselves. And that's a problem as far, the way I see it, because... As women, we do take care of others. In fact, we do like 80% of the caretaking in the entire world. And, you know, if you don't feel good, you can't take care of others as easily or as effectively. You know, you're feeling like crap and you're irritable and you have, you're exhausted and, I mean, and, 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 and. So it's really important to take, I think, to take care of ourselves first because that helps us take better care of others. Even the airline says, you know, put on your own mask before you put on your kids. Yeah, they do. Absolutely, they do. And it's so true. I don't know where that comes from, too. I kept reading it, and I know better. And yet, sometimes I end up thinking about what's happening with me and how it's going to impact everyone else. You know what I mean? We all do that. We all do that. So I'm not quite sure where that comes from, if it's just our socialization, but you outline it very well in your book. And what were some other things? Well, the the thing that surprised me the most, actually, and it's going to be in my, my started a second book, and it's it's the shame that women, almost all of the women felt about becoming ill. They felt they were letting their families down, number one. They felt that they were overwhelmed with stress, and most of them felt that their stress had caused their illness. They felt, as a matter of fact, they felt that their illness was almost like a public message. Hey, look, I'm sick. I can't manage my life. My stress caused this, and I manage it so poorly I made myself ill. That was truly the message that they thought their illness was putting out there. 
So as a result, very few of them talked about their illness. They denied themselves the support they need. Some even delayed going to the doctor because they were so sure. They First of all, they were embarrassed. And second of all, they felt that the doctor was going to blame them. I mean, it really, it was just, I don't happen to do that. When I get sick, I get so angry at the world. I get pissed off, you know, that I'm missing a day of my life. I mean, how dare this happen to me? So my reaction was so, that's why I think I was so surprised because my reactions are so totally different. I completely understand that. And a lot of times I think this whole, you know, you got to be a strong woman, you got to be tough, you got to handle, be able to handle it all, you know, this superwoman complex that you somehow feel like you have to handle all the time and then you're sick. And yeah, you're just, instead of going, okay, I need to stop and take care of myself, you feel like I've been broken. What's broken me? The world can't know that I'm fragile in some way. And it just comes very naturally. And speaking of blame and shame and such like that, I, one of the things I found interesting in one of the stories in your book that you talk about is an incident that happened with your daughter, Lisa, when she was a teenager and she got ill. She had the TMJ. And tell us a little bit about that and how you were made to feel in the middle between these doctors. And That was quite the scene. For those of you that don't know, TMJ, it's, it's really a jaw disorder. It's too much to explain. But when you chew, if every time we talk, I guess, every time you move your jaw up and down, it hurts. So it, we took Lisa to the doctor and they wanted, at the time, there were two camps in the TMJ field. One was you should go in, have surgery, and they will replace the ball and joint that your jaw is with a Teflon, with some sort of artificial disc, and that will cure the pain. The other camp said, absolutely don't have surgery, whatever you do, just let it go and hopefully she'll grow out of it. She was, you know, still a kid. She was 14 or 15, whatever. But what was so interesting to me was, first of all, how do I even begin this? My husband went with me to all of the appointments. The particular doctor that we saw that was in the you must have surgery camp actually turned to me, not to my husband, just was all directed at me as the mother. And she said, you know, if you don't allow your daughter to have surgery, you really need to get some therapy and examine your unconscious hostility to your daughter. I mean, my mouth dropped open, okay? But then the doctor who said, whatever you do, don't have surgery. Again, he looked directly at me, did not talk to my husband, and said, you know, parents don't always need their children to be perfect. You know, as if I was just throwing her into surgery to establish perfection. I was so angry. But even more important than the obvious gender bias in those conversations is the importance of getting second opinions. You know, we lived in L.A., and we had both the financial resources as well as a variety of doctors at our fingertips, which I know that isn't, you know, always the case depending on your location. But we went to seven different doctors, and actually it was about three and a half to three and a half. I mean, there was no winning confirmation. And the importance of, uh, let me interrupt myself for a minute. What we did is Lisa was old enough at that point, and she agreed 
And we just thought, well, we'll put it off and, you know, if it still bothers her when she's 20, either it's going to get better, stay the same or get worse. So let's see what happens. And it's not perfect, but it's better. But what was so interesting about that is that Teflon disc that they use to replace uh, whatever it is in the jaw, there's been a 100% subsequent failure rate. And in fact, many women have been disfigured and their jaw has, um, what's that when you It's like atrophied. Atrophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank God we didn't do it. Wow. Yeah, can you imagine? But I really, second opinions, or in my case, seven opinions, several opinions, (laughs) are really important. Don't, we should talk about that at some point. Absolutely should. I'm glad you brought that up here. And you mentioned that also in the book, you, you talk about it in the book as well, is that women are hesitant to get uh, second opinions, which surprised me. Uh, I think you and I are similar with the, wait a minute, I got to go and see what's what's going on here. But what did you find or to be the cause of that? Why would women be more hesitant to get the second opinion? Well, let me back up just a second, and I will answer your question specifically. But the first thing women need to realize, and frankly, I didn't until I did my research, there's about 30 or 40,000 different diseases out there. And those are just the ones we know about. So diagnosis is not easy because many of those diseases have the same symptoms. And to further complicate the issue, women have a tendency to get autoimmune diseases. I think 80 or 90 percent of all autoimmune disease patients are women. And those autoimmune diseases are incredibly tricky to diagnose. Again, their symptoms mimic each other or can mimic each other. Plus, there's not always a definitive blood test. So for a doctor, and I, as I said, I did not realize this, a diagnosis is a tricky business or can be. I mean, obviously, if you break a leg and you have pain in your leg, you know, that doesn't take a genius to diagnose. But it's a very tricky business. And so that's the first reason that I want to emphasize why second opinions are so important. You want to get your diagnosis and your treatment confirmed. You certainly don't want to go under treatment for a disease you may not have, obviously. And so I think to answer your, specifically your question, as I, a lot of the women were, are afraid. They were afraid of being rude. They were afraid of, uh, they felt it wasn't their place. You know, I'm not the professional. The doctor knows best. They didn't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. And they were also afraid of being labeled hysterical. They were very afraid that if they questioned, that one woman said to me, I would never get a second opinion because I'm afraid that he, the doctor, they would think that I was a difficult patient that would go on my chart and it would follow me through my medical career. So there are some specific socialization, culture, socialization, cultural reasons that women hesitate. And I think, again, that it is so important to be aware of this so that you can get a second opinion. And interestingly enough, and then I promise, I talk a lot, I promise I'll be quiet. Oh, no, I'm I'm here for all of it. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you. You're making it easy. Do but, not stop. Um, I, I was on a show with a doctor, and several actually, and one of them said to me, number one, she really appreciated a second opinion because she's never 100% sure. There's too many possible other things it could be. But secondly, she said, it helps me if a second doctor or a third doctor confirms my original diagnosis. It helps protect me in case of malpractice. So she said it's to the doctor's benefit 
tip for patients to get a second opinion, that on the contrary, she welcomes it and even embraces it. So I thought that was an interesting point. I think that is absolutely beneficial because we don't tend to think like that. Even I would always get a second opinion, but even then I would be thinking, oh my God, I know they're going to be mad, but I got to do this for myself anyway. It would just be kind of me feeling, you know, a little bit rebellious for my own benefit because that's who I am. But at the same time, you know, I wouldn't think that. I would not think that it would be something that they would absolutely want or at least think of something that would... I'm sure that's not true for all of them. I mean, there are jerks in every profession. Let's be, I don't care if we're talking about doctors, hairdressers, plumbers, you know, podcasters. You know? My podcasters, they're, they're everywhere. You can find a jerk anywhere you go. It's true. It's true. Anywhere you go. That's absolutely very true. But I absolutely think that at least to have that frame of reference that, yeah, somebody might be mad about it, but at the end of the day, it's still your health. And you touch on this as well, a lot of, Uh, The treatments that are out there, the medical system and the science behind a lot of it is all geared towards men's bodies. So we generally put us at, you know, we need that second opinion because somebody else is studying something very different to tap into something that no one even knew was out there. So I think it's a great thing. So definitely get second opinion. Yeah. And, you know, let me just add on and enhance what you just said. Uh, Not only as much of medicine and what we know is based on the male body. Women, this is so interesting to me. I was really angry when I read this. Women researchers get less money than men, male researchers. Women's diseases get less money for research than men's diseases. For example, prostate cancer, which is usually, it's not always fatal, gets much more money than ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, and those cancers can be are more fatal more easily or more frequently, let's put it that way. But Again, the male disease gets the money. Women researchers are actually published less often than men researchers. So in other words, if you're a woman researcher researching a woman's disease, you're going to find yourself at the bottom of the publication and funding barrel. So we know less about women's bodies than we do about men's. And what that means is women. there's about 12 million people misdiagnosed annually. And women are, and incidentally, women of color, marginalized women, are certainly misdiagnosed even more than white women. But we're 20 to 30 percent more likely to be misdiagnosed than a man. So that's another plug for a second opinion. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Just just hearing that, it still just caused me to stall a little bit. And one of the other things, and also with the second opinions, and we can get into this as well, is, and you talk about this, is how men and women communicate so differently with their doctors. We talk very differently. And how, in in your research, how have those difference in the styles of conversation, how can they impact our care and, and our diagnosis? Yeah, there is quite a difference. And just to introduce the topic for a minute. Researchers gave a bunch of uh, doctors letters. Uh, they were from patients that who, who were currently having experiencing cancer symptoms. And they were able to tell, I think it was 60 or 70 letters, they were able to tell which letters were written by men and which letters were written by women because the styles were so different. And that's because men are succinct. They're much more objective. They go in and they say, I don't let me make this up. I have a sore throat. And they sort of stop there. 
they want to approach the problem with the doctor as kind of a team and they want to hear the doctor's opinion. Women go in and we're much more emotive and I am as guilty of this as anybody. I'll go into the doctor and I'll tell them the whole story about how my sore throat is preventing me from taking care of my children and I have this project to work on my energy. And by the time I'm done, my physical symptoms are actually have become marginalized to my emotional ones. And so what happens is that leads the doctor or can lead the doctor to give me a psychological diagnosis and say, well, you're just stressed. And of course, I am stressed because I feel like crap again. You know, of course, I'm stressed. And I've, you know, my life doesn't stop just because I don't feel good. But nevertheless, so what the different conversation styles do is they can lead, they lead the conversation or the focus of the visit down the wrong path. And I think it's important that when you get a stress diagnosis, and incidentally, women do have more stress and anxiety than men. We take most of the antidepressants around. But nevertheless, you absolutely want to say, well, what else could this possibly be? You always want to make sure there's no organic cause. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I think we all can work on having being a little bit more direct with our doctors and not feeling intimidated to basically tell them specifically what it is. Is it beneficial? And I used to do this. I've gotten a lot better at it is write a list of things of what I specifically (laughs) want answered and just going in very focused in on what it is I know that they're going to be thinking about and how they're going to be thinking. But at the same time, should you be, I don't want to should anyone, but is it more beneficial for a woman to seek out a woman's doctor? Or did you find that whether there's a male doctor or a woman doctor, they tend to have the same kind of way that they process information. You know, that's an interesting question. And no, men doctors, women doctors, they behave differently with patients. It's interesting. When I began the book, the book took me 10 years to write. So some of the information changed over the course of my writing. When I first began, there was a lot of people have asked me that, and there was really no difference, they said, between a male doctor and a female doctor. Basically, and I think this piece of it is still true, a visit with a female doctor will take longer. A visit with a male doctor is much shorter. So my first answer is it depends where you're coming from. If you want to see the doctor and you're on your lunch hour, you want to get in and get out, you're probably better off with a male doctor. If you want more of a personal relationship and you need to really talk things over and you have the time, you probably want a female doctor. But now that I've said that, the latest research seems to indicate that women especially are better off with women doctors. And again, you know, this is, I hate generalizations. I have my cardiologist is a male and he spends over an hour with me. I mean, did everybody hear that? Over an hour. That's unheard of in this day and age. And always wants to know how I'm doing. And we talk about this and we talk about that. And then I have an endocrinologist who I walk in and she says, hi, how are you? And I say, fine. And then we just move on. So it just depends on the individual. (laughs) Okay. So, and also what it depends on the individual doctor. And it also depends on what you as a woman need, what your time element is, et cetera. What's important is to have a good relationship with your doctor, to feel that you like them and they like you, because that will impact your care. That's an important caveat I want to add on to that. That is a very important caveat to add on. It does all narrow down to how you feel 
about that person when you walk in there. And I'd like to know what you think about this is I think women have an instinctual process that we can kind of we know how we're feeling about something when we walk into it. And a lot of times we get this feeling about a doctor or a healthcare provider. And more often than not, we kind of yield to, well, they, like you said, they, they're the professional. Is it, or what do you think if it's better to kind of go with that instinct? If I don't feel like this is a person who likes me or is not taking my care seriously, you should be seeking out another doctor. Yes. You know, again, it depends. I mean, I hate to keep saying that, but it does. And I completely agree with you. And it's sort of, I mean, if the doctor that you don't relate to or you don't or you feel doesn't like you or you don't like and it's your primary doctor, I would switch doctors. I mean, I had a bad experience once with just a specialist who was doing a biopsy and the guy was a jerk, but I never had to see him again. So what did I care? I mean, it was a one shot deal. It wasn't worth making another appointment, trying to park. I mean, you know, the whole business. But he was an idiot. Right, right. But I think it's really important, though, to listen to your guts, whether it's about your doctor or, like in my case, when I had surgery, I knew I didn't need. I mean, I had options that I was I was younger then that I, you know, I, could, I didn't get a second opinion. I didn't give myself time to think it over. I can tell you all the things I didn't do that I think are really important. That's an important message that you just brought up, to listen to your guts. What did you find were the three most, um, and we may have covered it already, but what are the three most common hurdles women need to overcome to improve their health care? What are, or three or four or five, however however many you have? (laughs) Well, I think the, the main one, and it's sort of an umbrella for all of the rest of them, is that it's your body. And I think you really have to take charge of it. And I I don't mean to plug the book here, but there are so many tips in the book that will help you do that. And I want to say one thing, which is sort of a sidebar to what you just asked me, because it is your body. And the way that one of the things you can do to take control of your doctor visit is absolutely go in with a list, like Alicia just said, that, uh, that she really hit on the most important thing. And written list, don't have the list in your head, because if you're as anxious as I am, you'll forget half of what you want to talk about when you get there. Plus, the list helps the doctor review your issues, and they can reprioritize if they need to. And then the second thing I really want to emphasize so that, again, you can take control is ask the doctor for the clinical name of whatever disease they think you have so that you can go home and look it up. Do your research. At the back of the book, there's a huge resource list. I've done your research for you. It tells you how to do it. It tells you how to research your diagnosis, how to research the hospital that you may need to go to. Some hospitals are better at cardiology and some have better records with neurology. I mean, you want to know what you're getting yourself into. Third, be sure you go for a second opinion. Please, 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 particularly if it's a serious diagnosis. And last but not least, you want to say to the doctor, in your experience, what else could this possibly be? Particularly if you're given a diagnosis of stress, what else could this be? You want That gives you a couple of things to go home and look up or go to the library wherever you have access to a computer. And maybe they can, that will help you decide whether you think and are, whether you are comfortable with your diagnosis. So I think that that 
really is one of the things to get the most effective health care, to answer your question directly, I'm saying, please take charge of yourself, take charge of your health. The doctor is there to advise you. Not He's not there as a parent to tell you what to do. Oh, wow. That is great advice. That is gr- such great advice. And and really just hit home. And, and I do want to circle back to, like, when I was reading the book, I saw how resourceful it was. And I think that if you're using, if, if you're reading the book, if you get nothing more than to flip to the back and get to the resources <laughs> on how to get to, it really does. They put it all in there because you can spend hours on the internet and hours trying to figure things out and knowing the right questions to ask to get you to where you need to be for your own diagnosis and for your own health. And I absolutely commend you for this book. It is just, like I said, it just, just use it as your pocket guide. You know, I'll I'll probably just defer to it the next time I I have a, just a reminder, like, okay, what was it? What was it? What was it? I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure that that's something that would happen. Well, thank you so much for the recommendation. I I mean, really, I, I very much appreciate it. And it is a resource. I mean, it's not a page turner. It's not, you know, a historical romance or something, but (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it's not a romance. Uh, it definitely is something or depends on how you feel about yourself, though. If you feel that, you know, uh, no, all things said, I, I do appreciate you for that. And you have a second book coming out. You're working on something else. Well, not well. coming. I've just started it. I mean, I'm literally on page five, you know, so it'll be a while. But I am. It's the, the, the shame thing really interested me since that's something I don't feel and I really want to know more about it. So that's going to be you know, book two. I think that's great. And we may have hit this, uh, you may, you've said so much already, but I always still like to leave because you did, you really did your homework for this book. I mean, you really did the research, you did the homework. It was very in-depth. All that said, what other, in addition to everything, I think your book itself is just this book of wisdom. Uh, Did you have anything additional just from your life experience, just what you would like to pour out onto our listeners, just from your heart? I would. And I mean, it's, it's off the subject, but the title of your podcast, 50 Now What? That really interested me because I'm 81. I'm full of energy. I published my first book at, what, 79. I'm starting my second book at 81. I've got grandchildren. I exercise all the time. I mean, there's a, not only is there life after 50, it's a wonderful life. I mean, in my particular case, my kids were out of the house. My husband and I both were in good health, so we were very lucky. And we were sort of able to finally take care of ourselves and do things together without worrying about babysitters and are the kids happy and, 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 and. I mean, it's a peaceful time in life. So when you say 50, now what? I think you guys, all those of you out there that are in your 50s, you have the best years of your life coming up. That's really how I felt about it and still do. I absolutely love that. That is perfect. I absolutely love that. And that's what the whole uh, the title was about. And you just surmised it just perfectly. Thank you so much for your time and your book. And do you have a website you want to defer anyone to or any other? Thank you. I do have a website. It's SusanSalinger.com. And Salinger is S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R. It's spelled a little differently. And I'm the book is available on Amazon or 
you know, Barnes and Noble, whatever, anywhere. And I'm on Instagram, I'm on TikTok, I'm all over. So it should be easy to find. In fact, if you want to see my weightlifting, that's on TikTok. It's grandma.gains, G-A-I-N-S. And it's really fun. I'm really strong. You guys can't see me, but I'm this little tiny old woman. And I'm really strong. I wouldn't arm wrestle you. I know you'd beat me. (laughs) I could probably bench press you, you know? (laughs) Oh, I know you could. I know you could. And I'm definitely going to this TikTok. I'm definitely going to TikTok now. And I will definitely follow you on Instagram as well. Uh, Thank you so much. And all the information for our listeners will also be in our our notes on the podcast. So we'll definitely have that uh, written down for you. Just look in the notes. So thank you so much, Susan. I have appreciated you and your time. And I can't wait for the next book. Well, thank you so much. I really had fun. I loved it. Thanks. Oh, you're awesome. Thank you for listening to 50. Now what? A special thank you to my guest, Susan. Be sure to pick up her book, Sidelined, How Women Can Navigate a Broken Healthcare System, wherever books are sold, and visit her at susansalinger.com. Make sure to follow us, rate, and share the show. Make sure to follow me on Instagram for continuous updates at 50 Now What Podcast. That's 5-0 Now What Podcast. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer, Stephen Selnick as producer, and Rob Johnson as editor and audio engineer. I love working with this team. To learn more about making a podcast for you or your business, visit them at rainbowcreative.co.